Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Evidence of Russian war crimes litters the broken landscape of Ukraine. The bodies of murdered civilians lying in the streets of Bucha, the burnt-out shell of the Mariupol theater hit while people were sheltering inside. Amid mounting evidence of atrocities committed purposefully, investigations are already underway and a judicial reckoning has been promised. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed to ensure the horrors his country has witnessed would be the last manifestations of such evil on earth. But over 75 years after the Nuremberg trials meted out summary verdicts to Nazi war criminals, there's still a long and slow trudge from the carnage of the battlefields to the doors of the courthouse. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, will Russian war criminals face justice? My guest is Professor Ona Hathaway, an expert on law and warfare based at Yale University, and an advisor to the U.S. State Department on international law. Recently, she testified before Congress on the use of military force in Iraq. Ona Hathaway, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. The atrocities committed by Russian troops in Ukraine have sparked accusations of war crimes. Do we have a working definition for what is a war crime? And what has Russia done that would constitute such? Do we have clear examples of what would qualify for that category? Yeah, so a war crime is a serious violation of the laws of war, the law of armed conflict. And the kinds of things that would count as a war crime would be, for instance, intentionally targeting civilians, which we've seen lots of evidence of what seems to be intentional targeting of civilian apartments, of hospitals, of of individual civilians as well, those all would constitute pretty clear war crimes. Does it matter what the legal status of the invasion itself is? Because if the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, Ukraine as a sovereign state, is illegal, then surely anything that follows from it is a war crime. There's actually two different bodies of law at work here. So One is a law that governs whether the war is legal itself or not. And here, the main rule that's relevant is the UN Charter, which prohibits states from engaging in uses of force against other states. Clearly, Russia is violating that law. Certainly, the acts that it does in pursuance of that aggressive war is illegal and can be a crime of aggression. But there's a separate body of law that regulates the behavior of states once they've begun a war. And it applies to everyone, regardless of whether they're legally defending themselves, like the Ukrainians, 
or engaging in an illegal aggressive war like the Russians. And it's basically, what are the rules that govern how you behave during the conflict? So do you respect medical personnel? Are you doing everything you can to keep civilians safe? Um, When you're targeting a military target, are you not really caring whether you're killing lots of civilians in the process? That's the rule of proportionality. And that applies to you regardless of whether you're waging a legal or an illegal war. So it applies to Ukrainians as well as the Russians. On that definition, both sides could plausibly accuse each other of war crimes, but it would appear not only by uh, dint of the invasion, but by the conduct since that that would fall much more heavily on the Russian side. I'm stating my opinion here. Do you agree? We're all following the same news sources and we see the same kind of feeds of what's coming out of Ukraine. And the vast majority of what appear to be war crimes are being committed by the Russians. They're harming uh, civilian populations. They're intentionally starving local populations. The brutality that took place in Bukha clearly constitute massive war crimes. There have been some anecdotal reports of violations of the law of armed conflict by individual Ukrainian soldiers and some units. I don't know that those have yet been verified. And Ukraine has announced that it intends to investigate those as it should and as it's legally obligated to. And that brings us to another very naughty definition that plays a role here. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of committing genocide, the gravest of crimes against humanity. The Kremlin, of course, denies that. On the basis of the evidence, as you're able to assess it at the moment, do Russia's actions in Ukraine amount to genocide? The tricky thing about genocide, so it requires a very strong intent. The definition in the Genocide Convention is is basically an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national group. So you have to show that there's an intent, not just that you've killed a lot of people, which has clearly happened, but that you intend to destroy the group in whole or in part. And here that would be Ukrainians. There is increasing evidence that that is, in fact, True. So all of this rhetoric that Ukraine never really existed as a as a separate nation, that Ukrainians are not really a separate people. What seems to have been some intention, even as early as February, to change Russian textbooks to eliminate all references to Ukraine. This is evidence that there is an attempt not just to seize territory but to kind of wipe out the Ukrainians and the very idea of Ukraine. Isn't that rather difficult, though? Because you you might well have an aggressor power, in this case, Russia, that wants to culturally do down Ukraine, as it happened in in this case, or the, the country that it's attacking. But it really is aiming more to seize the territory than to wipe out its people, which is, I think, the lay definition of genocide springing, of course, from the Holocaust, that I think most people would identify with. And if one stretches that to saying, well, this could be sort of a cultural genocide, we get into a bit of a marshy territory here. There is a very precise legal definition, and it does turn on the question of intent. And what's so hard about that is figuring out what are the Russians intending. You have to have much more direct evidence than we have right now to be certain that you would have enough evidence to prove genocide. And President Biden said that in his opinion, it was a genocide. But then he also backtracked and made it clear that you know he hadn't really consulted his lawyers. 
And there hasn't been a statement from the State Department or from any of the major groups that track genocides um, that, in fact, their conclusion is that, that this is, in fact, meeting the legal definition of a genocide. And I think there's concern that, you know, you don't want to get out ahead of the facts. The facts for proving a genocide are very specific, and, and it is quite difficult to to prove a genocide. Meanwhile, it's very clear lots of terrible, awful, illegal things are happening in Ukraine. And that's why I think a lot of human rights lawyers say, yeah, it's important for us to investigate genocide. That is certainly something that is within the scope of the International Criminal Court's investigation. It's one of the three crimes that will be investigated, and it should be. Um, but we shouldn't be so fixated on that and lose track of the fact that you know there are war crimes and likely crimes against humanity being committed all over Ukraine. Our editorial conclusion for anyone who hasn't read it or hasn't read it yet was that the plain facts of what Russia is doing are horrific enough. There is no need to exaggerate them. So we came down against calling this a genocide as such because we thought that those facts were not established or couldn't be established yet. Let's look at how we might deal with war crimes and how they could be prosecuted. Ukraine is pushing for the establishment of a special international tribunal, which would one day try Russia's leaders for the crimes of aggression, uh, political and military leaders. That would be modelled on the Nuremberg trials. Is that a model that you think would be a plausible way to go? As you pointed out, there is going to have to be a special court created to try the crime of aggression because while the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, it doesn't have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression for non-state parties. And since Russia is not a party to the International Criminal Court, it can't prosecute that crime. So we have to have a standalone tribunal to address this problem. The question then has been sort of how to do this. And it's not clear that they've necessarily settled on a, a definitive model, but it does seem like they're coalescing around an idea of something on the Nuremberg style model, a bunch of states that more or less agree that a court should be stood up, would sort of create a court with the agreement of Ukraine to try the crime of aggression. My worry about that approach, frankly, is that Nuremberg existed before we had a United Nations. Nuremberg had to be created as a kind of independent court because there wasn't any international organization in existence at the time that could be the home for that court, that could stand it up. And right now we do have the United Nations. We have an international organization. There were 140 members of the General Assembly voted to condemn Russia's invasion. And it strikes me as a much more legitimate approach instead to create the court through an agreement between the United Nations and Ukraine Ukraine, the starting position, it's not the only country that has been through a terrible trauma that has made this argument that the court should be based there, should be based in the country that was the, the prime victim of the aggressor. That was rehearsed quite thoroughly in the, the case of the former Yugoslavia. And in fact, a different route was chosen to hearings in The Hague. What do you think about that balance of people saying, well, why do we have to go somewhere entirely different when this was where terrible things happened, this is where justice should be meted out. There's a strong case for Ukraine's claims that this should take place in Ukraine. I think the obvious difficulty is that there are security issues with creating a court in a country that, at least for now, is in the middle of, a, of an ongoing war. I think the difficulty is also it requires a lot of personnel, a lot of expertise, 
in order to have this court be operational. You also need to be able to hold those that you are trying in a secure way, a safe way, um, and a responsible way. And so I think those are some of the challenges. But I think that there's a point to the argument that this is Ukraine that is suffering from the crime of aggression. It's Ukraine that should be able to, to hold the court and hold the trials within Ukraine. I think the most important thing is that it meets all the international legal standards and our international human rights, that defendants have an opportunity to defend themselves and the rest. Well, that was exactly a criticism of the the Nuremberg process, wasn't it, for understandable reasons after a world war and also that the crimes were so public, at least of most of those who were were tried. But there were doubts about whether a defence was viable. So what kind of international justice reckoning would you put forward? And we know this is is imperfect and there are trade-offs and balances. So if we hand you the decision as to what the format would be, what would you give us? If you give me the magic wand and I got to create the court, I would create it through a agreement, a treaty between the United Nations and Ukraine with the recommendation of the General Assembly. I think it would make a lot of sense to set it up in The Hague. The main reason for doing it in The Hague is you have immense expertise, you have facilities. I would focus it exclusively on the crime of aggression, which is a leadership crime. It will go after the top leadership of Russia that's responsible for this invasion. And I think bringing in both international experts and close consultation and working directly with Ukrainians uh, to really put forward what is going to be the first major set of prosecutions of the crime of aggression since Nuremberg. So the whole world is going to be watching. And it's important that it's be done right and carefully to make sure that that this is seen as legitimate. And and that, I think, is really crucial to the whole process unfolding and working effectively. So what evidence or what kind of evidence needs to be gathered for an investigation? And and how can it be collected in a a way that would be seen as legitimate? Clearly, there will always be people who are so bought into the aggressor argument that they will never see it as such. But you have to try to have the broadest possible buy-in of reasonable people, even those who may not have started out very sympathetic to Ukraine. How confident are you that that evidence can be gathered? I'm pretty confident that the evidence can be gathered because the crime of aggression is basically waging an illegal war. So that is a violation under the definition in the International Criminal Court's Rome statute. That's the statute that creates the International Criminal Court, defines a crime of aggression as a manifest violation of the United Nations Charter. And the United Nations Charter prohibits states from using force against one another it's pretty clear that that is what Russia has been doing. So the acts are not hard. The tricky part for the court is going to be identifying who is responsible for planning and carrying out and initiating this war. There's going to have to be a lot of inside information um, about who particularly was involved. I mean, Putin is the, the obvious person, but he's not the only one who potentially could be held responsible for the crime of aggression. So that's where you need experienced prosecutors. And likely the United States, the United Kingdom, Ukraine, a number of other states are going to be essential because they have likely intelligence that is going to be important to being able to build the case. Of course, another source of documentation is social media and the way that war is being prosecuted and experienced by those on the ground and understood outside is now much more through social media. It's much more rapid than in the days I was a war correspondent in the dissolution of Yugoslavia, but also in Chechnya and other wars around the Russian periphery. 
in those days, you had your ragged notebooks, and if somebody wanted to get hold of evidence, it was either there on the printed page in the newspapers or in, in reports in the broadcast media, or you had your notebook, and that was pretty much it. Uh, how confident are you that, that social media will come out of this well? Because for every person who says, well, this is great because I can actually show you in real time what I witnessed, something I would love to have been able to have done when it came to penning blame on war crimes, the aftermath of which I had witnessed, someone else will say, well, that could be doctored, it could be bots. There'll be a long, long argument about any sort of evidence that is transferred digitally. You're absolutely right. And and I think that's going to be one of the big challenges of all of these prosecutions and investigations, how to use social media in building the case. So there are issues around authenticity that you've identified. You know, is it really what it seems to be? Is it a deep fake? Do we really know that, in fact, it was taken when it was claimed to have been taken for the purposes it was claimed to have been taken for? There's going to be chains of custody issues. There's going to be permanence questions. You know, things can be put up and taken down. How do you keep it from disappearing before you can use it? So there's a whole set of complex evidentiary questions that we're really going to confront in some ways for the first time. I'm interested that you base your solution to this or the route that you would like to go on the authority of the ICC. Russia doesn't recognise it. President Biden, although he has called for a war crimes tribunal and labelled Putin a war criminal, the US isn't a member of the ICC either. So to be a bit provocative, you could say that you've got a, a solution in search of major countries on either side of the great divide in the, the world, neither of which are signed up to it. And that doesn't sound like a realistic prospect. Well, it's an interesting situation for we find ourselves in. Now, the reason the International Criminal Court is going to play a big role here is because Ukraine made the decision back in 2014 to give the court jurisdiction over events that were taking place in Ukraine. So even though Ukraine is not a party to the International Criminal Court, it hasn't signed the Rome Statute, it has given jurisdiction to the court. And so that's why the court has initiated um, investigations of events that are unfolding in Ukraine. There is a kind of oddity, at least for the United States, and I know there's an internal conversation happening within the Biden administration about how much can or should we support the International Criminal Court's work here? Because on the one hand, we're decrying the war crimes that are taking place. We believe in accountability for these atrocious uh, violations that are taking place. And the International Criminal Court is the court best set up to do this. It's already engaging in these investigations and it has jurisdiction. But the U.S. has this very naughty history with the International Criminal Court. Under the Trump administration, we sanctioned the court and its prosecutor because of their investigation of uh, potential war crimes by the United States and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Some say, you know, we shouldn't give it legitimacy. We shouldn't support it. I think quite the opposite. I think that we should support it. I think we should give it legitimacy. I think we're discovering that uh, our opposition to the International Criminal Court was really misplaced and that the court plays an incredibly important role in providing for accountability where otherwise it would be extremely difficult to have it. I do have some doubts about the position that you're outlining, not because I don't think that the International Criminal Court looks like a model to be worked with and worked around, particularly when we talk about the case that we're, we're on air today about Russia, Ukraine. But you, you mentioned there Afghanistan and, and America and war crimes in one breath and put a part 
from the fact that it's sort of Donald Trump was out there making trouble about it. It is the case, is it not, that if America, and at least in the days when America was very directly engaged in intervening in the world, it would be constantly in front of the ICC and it would find itself put in, in the dock however good its values were, however good its limited control that it has over theatres of war. And I wonder if that is one reason why so many people oppose it. You might otherwise think it's an OK idea. Well, it's pretty clear the US is not going to join the International Criminal Court anytime soon. That's not what I'm advocating Uh, What I am advocating is cooperating with the court, which has jurisdiction in this case. And it has it because the place where the crimes are being committed, that is Ukraine, has given jurisdiction to the court. And Ukraine has jurisdiction. It has the right to prosecute these crimes if it wishes. And in fact, it's likely to be prosecuting some of these crimes in its domestic courts. But it should also be able to make the decision to hand off some of those cases to the International Criminal Court where the particularly complex or particularly high level officials. And I don't think that hurts the United States. I think that the United States should be supportive of addressing impunity. And I think where the U.S. might fall within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, the the way that the court works is it only takes on cases if a state has not adequately investigated it themselves. And and I think that we can address any possible liability that we might face by showing that we've actually engaged in the investigations that are necessary to take advantage of that. Does that mean that America would be opting into the ICC's values, but not its authority? And you could see why that in the, the wider world might look like having your cake and eating it. I think that the U.S. already shares the values. I mean, the U.S. has for a long time been a champion of accountability for war crimes and was the key actor that stood up. The Nuremberg Court was the key proponent of creating the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, has historically championed international justice mechanisms. So I don't think that there's a kind of hypocrisy in that. I can see that that some might say, well, it should join so that subjects all of its actions to the jurisdiction of the court. I guess I don't think that it's quite so black and white. I mean, I think that it can cooperate with the court where it sees it's appropriate. And it has in the past. I mean, it supported the referral of crimes that took place in Libya to the International Criminal Court. So I don't think that it's all that crazy to suggest that that it should support it here, where the court is really well situated to address the situation. And the state that might have its sovereignty concerns, which would be Ukraine, is actually the one that's seeking its assistance here. At the start of April, President Zelensky addressed the United Nations. He questioned the organization's mandate and its ability to uphold peace and security globally, its founding mission and to come to the defence of those threatened. Do you think the Ukraine crisis will change that? Do you think it will change anything materially about international institutions and how far and how readily they step up and where the legal system will also alter as a result? It's early to tell, but I think that it can't help but change a lot about the international system. I think we've already seen international justice mechanisms kick in much faster than has ever been true before. And we've seen much more massive sanctions put in place. I think as we go forward, we're going to see, I think, a lot of questions about 
how should our international organizations be changed to provide accountability in cases where there's massive violations? And I think there's going to be a real questioning about the validity and value of the Security Council going forward with with Russia on the Security Council and able to prevent any kind of movement to provide accountability through the council and the interesting use of the Uniting for Peace resolution that sent this to the General Assembly. We could see the General Assembly taking up much more of a significant leadership role within the United Nations. And we've seen Russia kicked out of the Council of Europe. And there's so many things that have been happening that I think we're going to see reverberations of this for a very, very long time to come. Ona Hathaway, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And do let us know what you think. What's your view on previous attempts to bring justice in the wake of conflicts? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. As the long fight for a reckoning begins, so too does the next phase of war in Ukraine. On our website, you can read an interview with Volodymyr Zelensky's military advisor, Alexei Arestoevich, about the fight to save the besieged port city of Mariupol and why Ukrainian resistance is showing the brittleness of the Russian army. To read that, visit our website. And the only way to enjoy full access to all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon and the executive producer, Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.